Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. All right, let's say a word of prayer and uh, jump into this morning's message. Uh, Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your presence with us today. Uh, We recognize, God, that uh, music is a tremendous gift that helps us express our praise and our worship to you. Uh, But we also recognize that uh, our worship doesn't stop when the music stops. But all of this is, in fact, an act of worship, uh, gathering together, celebrating uh, new life and your faithfulness and hearing about things that we can do to, to live into and practice our faith. And now, God, as we open up your word and, and seek uh, to not just understand on a head level, but, but really understand uh, and apply your word to our lives, uh, we just pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would be active and uh, freely at work in this place as we open up your word. Uh, so be with us, God, in these few moments uh, together. Uh, may we today be able to capture uh, more of who you are. Um, help us, God, to understand your character today. Uh, we thank you for this time, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, has anyone here ever played uh, Bible trivia? Anybody ever played Bible trivia? Uh, it's, it's the Christian version of trivia pursuit, or trivial pursuit, um, where all the questions are about the Bible, so there's, uh, there's Bible geography, Bible artifacts, plants of the Bible, and then a whole bunch of questions about who begat who. Uh, can, I, uh, can I make a confession to you this morning? Uh, I hate Bible trivia. <laughs> uh, I, I hate Bible trivia because as a pastor, if I lose, it always makes me feel like a failure. Uh, and it's also one of those games where it's like, oh, the pastor's here, let's play Bible trivia, or, or let, the pastor's here, so let's play Bible Mad Gab. Like, it, it, like, people think that they have to play these Christian versions of popular games, and, and I can really, as I get every answer wrong to Bible trivia, I can feel like this tangible decrease in confidence in who I am as a biblical scholar. So, um, thank you for coming this week, I just needed to get that off my chest. You are no okay. Uh, there, there is one Bible uh, trivia question that I always get right. It's the one I'm always hoping for anytime I'm playing Bible trivia, uh, and it's one that I bet you know as well. And the, the question is this: uh, What is the shortest verse in the Bible? Does anybody know? Jesus wept. Right. See, I'm always banking on that question coming up on my turn because every time I'm going to get it right. Uh, This question, what is the shortest verse in the Bible, to which the answer is, of course, Jesus wept. Uh, This question is really the gateway question uh, to impressing your friends with your Bible knowledge. Uh, The second gateway question is, of course, what verse is in the middle of the Bible? So for those of you taking notes and listening carefully, you can impress your friends by saying it's Psalm 103, verses 1 and 2. But all of that is to say, uh, what you may not know about Jesus wept is where it is found or what story it is part of. Uh, And it's actually found in John chapter 11, and it's part of the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And that is our our text this morning. And in particular, I I want to focus in on that verse, verse 35, uh, this morning, just to allow ourselves to enter into the depth 
the beauty of these words, Jesus wept. Uh, before we do that, and before I read this morning's text, I want to give us just a little bit of uh, context for it. The, the reality is that John chapter 11 is actually a gold mine of theological richness. Uh, but since I can't talk about everything this morning, I, I want to just summarize the story up to uh, where I'll begin reading. Uh, and that is at the beginning of the chapter, uh, John chapter 11, we learn of a man named Lazarus who is sick. Lazarus has two sisters, Mary and Martha. And Mary and Martha send word to Jesus that their brother Lazarus is sick, uh, hoping that he will do something in response to the news. In other words, they call out to Jesus, hoping for Jesus to take immediate action. Now we should know, or we should note, that these aren't uh, three strangers to Jesus. These aren't just faceless people in a crowd, but rather Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are friends of his, uh, people whom he loves. In fact, uh, John, the gospel writer, specifically mentions that this is the same Mary who poured perfume on Jesus' feet and then wiped it with her hair. And so there is, there is history here, there is friendship uh, among Jesus and this group of, of siblings. Uh, but upon hearing that Lazarus is sick, uh, coming from the two sisters, Mary and Martha, uh, Jesus does a curious thing. Uh, the scripture makes to sure to point out that Jesus, after hearing this word of, of him being sick, uh, waits where he's at two days uh, before making the journey. And so he waits two days before starting the journey from where he is at uh, to Bethany where Lazarus is at. And what we learn by the text is that by the time that Jesus arrives, Lazarus has been dead for four days. For four days. Now, I think that the reason that John includes that detail, John has been dead for four days, is, is a way of implicitly saying, Lazarus is really dead. Uh, he's really, really dead. He's been dead for four days. Uh, but upon word of his arrival, Jesus' arrival into the city of Bethany, Martha rushes out to meet Jesus outside of the city before he ever gets there. And, and then Martha says to Jesus, oh, if you had only been here, my brother would not have died. Well, Jesus comforts her with the assurance that he will, in fact, rise again. And what unfolds is this conversation about what do we believe about the resurrection and Jesus wants to provide Martha with, with hope that even in the midst of death, even when things seem really, really dead, there is always hope for resurrection and new life. Uh, that Jesus says, in fact, your brother will rise again. It's interesting, though, that even in the face of this good theology, Martha doesn't feel all that comforted in the moment. Martha rather says, well, yes, I know at the end, of the, at the last day, he will rise again. You can almost hear in her voice, but how does that help me now? <laughs> well, what Jesus says then is one of the famous lines of, of his I am statements. And he says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, can I tell you that we need good resurrection doctrine in the church? We, we need to know that in the face of things that look absolutely dead, when it looks like all hope is lost and all hope is gone, there is this truth, this reality that we can hold on to that, in fact, in those moments when we have said, oh, God, in fact, is not faithful. God, in fact, will not come through. All hope is gone. We need to hold on to this truth that, oh, no, church, there is always hope. 
of resurrection. But let me tell you, right when you're in the middle of it, we're a lot like Martha, aren't we? Yeah, but how does that help me now? That doesn't ease the pain at all. To which Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. What we learn from this passage, and I'm, I'm, I've got to be careful here, otherwise I'm going to end up preaching on the whole chapter, but uh, what we learn is that resurrection, it turns out, is not just a doctrine, and it's not just a future fact, but resurrection is, in fact, a person. Uh, the person of Jesus Christ who is standing right here in front of Martha. It, it is to say that even in the, in the hope of resurrection for the future and a good doctrine of resurrection, we need to know that, that when we need hope, hope is found not in a particular doctrine or even in a particular future hope, but in the person of Jesus Christ. Are you with me? That our hope is ultimately always found in the person of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is life come to life. Jesus is resurrection in person, in the flesh. And so wherever you find life in its most beautiful and authentic form, you find Christ because he is, in fact, life and new life. And so the story then, so that's the, the first sort of discourse between Jesus and Martha. But the story in John chapter 11 is actually uh, structured to give us sort of like all the, all the, the leading action. And then you have this, this uh, discussion between Martha and Jesus. Then you have a discussion between Mary and Jesus, which we're going to focus on. And then you have the miracle of uh, Jesus raising Lazarus to the dead. That's the structure there. Uh, and, and so I want to I read the conversation between Mary and Jesus, which actually takes place uh, in the same geographic location just outside of the city. Uh, and so if you have your Bibles here, turn with me to John chapter 11. Uh, I want to start reading at uh, verse 27. And then I'll, uh, actually I'm going to start reading at verse 28. And then I'm going to read through 37. Uh, 28 through 37. Uh, and since all of you did such a great job last week, uh, uh, I'm going to ask you to stand, those who are able to stand for the reading of God's word. Uh, and then after I'm done reading, I'm going to say, this is the word of God for the people of God, uh, to which your response is, do you remember? Thanks be, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Let's do thanks be to God. Okay? All right. So John chapter 11, beginning with verse 28. says, after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside she just said, the teacher is here and is asking for you. Now, when Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet entered the village, but he was still at the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews had uh, been with Mary in the house comforting her, noticed how she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing then that she was going to the tomb to mourn there. But when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit, and he was troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Well, come and see, Lord, they replied. And then our focus verse for today, verse 35, Jesus wept. Uh, the kingdom translation 
says Jesus burst into tears. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But then some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? This is the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. I've already confessed to you this morning that I don't um, enjoy Bible trivia. I have another confession to make, so thank you for being here today for all of my confessions. Uh, My second confession to you this morning is I'm really not much of a crier. Uh, Some of you are criers. Uh, Others of us are not. Uh, It's very rare for me to be moved to tears, uh, whether from grief or joy uh, in fact, I would want to admit to you today that there have been times in my life where I was hurting and going through tremendous difficulty that I have, have looked at Amy, my wife, and said, I wish I could just cry. <laughs> I think I would feel a lot better if I, could just, if I could just cry, but I just can't seem to squeeze them out even when I want to. Uh, No, I don't want you to think that I'm as emotionally removed as the new BBC version of Sherlock, because I'm not. Uh, but it is fair to say that I'm not much of a crier. And the truth is, we we really aren't quite sure what to do with tears, are we? Uh, On one hand, we we see tears, and I'm talking like just culturally, we we see tears as a sign of weakness. Um, Have you ever been crying and and felt like, you know, I shouldn't be crying. (laughs) This is not something to cry about. And so on one hand, we really see tears as a sign of weakness, that we should, be able to, we should be able to handle it. We should be able to get past it. We should be able to get over it. We should be able to rise above it. We should, have, we should be able to really not let it bother us at this level. And so we, we see tears as nothing but a sign that we can't handle the pain or the heartache or the disappointment or the betrayal or the letdown. But on the other hand, when it comes to tears, we, we recognize that tears are really actually quite, quite powerful. Whether they come from, from joy or from grief or pain, when, when someone cries, we, we realize there is something significant going on right here in this moment. That, that when tears start to flow, there's, there's this tangible change in the room to say, hold on, something is happening, something's going on. And so, on one hand, we, we want to say, well, well, tears are actually a sign of weakness, and you, you ought to be more, well, you ought to be more powerful than that. But on the other hand, we, we want to say, man, like tears themselves are actually quite powerful because they change the room. And also, it's a, it's a sign that something as significant is happening in our heart or in our body that really needs attention, right? Tears are this this sign that we, something needs to be paid attention to here. Uh, newborns cry uh, to let their parents know that something is amiss. Uh, they're hungry, they're tired, or they've just pooped. <laughs> and, and so we live in this tension about what to do with tears. Are they, in fact, a sign of weakness? Right? And I think that should be a tough guy shirt. Those of you who are in the t-shirt business, let's make a shirt that says tears are just weakness leaving the body. Right? And then like, have a, you can only wear that shirt if you have tons of muscles and stuff. But, um, and so are tears a sign of weakness? Or That was a bad joke. I tried to slip it in there and see how it went. But 
that's okay. Part of it is because I could not wear that shirt, right? So that's okay. Oh, now it got really sad. Okay, so on one hand, they're just signs of, are they signs of weakness or are they a powerful indication that something is really going on? Well, I want, to, I want us to think about tears this morning in this way. I want us to see tears as a sign of solidarity. As a sign of solidarity. Uh, the, the reason that you cry when you watch This Is Us uh, is because you identify with the characters. Uh, you have entered into their story and found solidarity with them so that their pain is your pain, uh, their joy is your joy, and their story reflects part of your story. In fact, some of you maybe aren't watching This Is Us, that TV show. You may say, I don't even know what that is. So instead of making it that specific, recognize that any, any TV show, any movie, any scene that we watch and we're moved to tears, know that when those tears are coming out of some sense of solidarity, I can identify with their story and connect it to my own, or I can, I'm sharing, I'm, I've become so invested in these characters that their joy is my joy, that their pain is my pain, right? And, and if you uh, are, are a, a non-emotional person like me, you're like, oh, wait, am I, you kind of look at your spouse or the people that you're with, and you think, am I supposed to be crying, right? Are you crying? Is this the point where we're supposed to cry? <laughs> but it's this, this sense of solidarity, but it's not just, this reality happens, of course, not just between the viewer and, and the, the narrative being played out on a screen. This actually happens in real life, right? Some of the most authentic moments of community that you've ever experienced are the moments when you have cried with someone. And you know what I'm talking about, don't you? The, the times when you see your friends struggle or walking through pain, and you've allowed their pain to become your pain, and so you join in their tears. It's this radical solidarity. And the reason that you cry when you have been hurt, or when you are facing difficulty, is because you have connected with your own sense of pain, your own sense of frustration your own sense of feeling betrayed, and you have connected with that, you've owned it, and then it brings you to tears. Tears are a sign of solidarity. With this in mind, I, I want us to consider the, the profound nature and the depth and the beauty of the Bible's shortest verse. With all of this in mind that we've talked about tears, consider for a moment with me the, the beauty and the profound nature of these words. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Jesus Christ burst into tears. You see, when we look at Jesus in tears in John chapter 11, we aren't just seeing a flesh and blood human being who was moved emotionally. We are certainly looking at that and seeing that. But, but even more than that, we are seeing the one whom John has called the Word made flesh. 
who is now in tears. And so the word that created and is creating, uh, the word who calmed and does calm the storm, the, the word who healed and is healing broken bodies, the word made flesh, I want you to hear this this morning, the word made flesh weeps at the grave of his friend. Now this runs, if, I think if we're honest for a moment, this, this actually runs counter to a lot of ways that we view God. This, this picture of a crying Messiah doesn't, just doesn't quite fit, does it? I, I think that we expect and in many ways want God to be removed from our situation because being removed from it uh, puts him in a better position to fix it, right? Uh, have, have you ever thought like that you want God to be connected enough to, go, to know what's going on, but removed enough that he's not moved by it so that he can go on fixing it? <laughs> Right? It's like if God gets too emotionally involved, if Jesus gets caught up emotionally in, in these moments, then, then we might say, well, he is hardly capable to do what is necessary to make the pain go away. Right? And so on, on one hand, we live in this tension of what to do with tears, but on the other hand, we, we also live in another tension, the tension of we want a God who is familiar with what's going on in our life, but we want a God removed enough to be able to swoop in and fix it and make everything right. Right? We kind of want a superhero God. One, one thing that is common in all superhero movies, and, and a lot of times what they're starting to do uh, is, is, is make this a comical moment, uh, but the, the superhero, after swooping in and fixing everything, just disappears, right? You, you've seen those, those clips in the movies where it's like the superhero swoops in, uh, fixes everything, and then before, every, before anyone knows it, they're gone. And, and I wonder somehow, sometimes if that's really what we Really what we want God to be like and to do is we want God to have sort of supersonic ears to be able to listen and hear and know everything that's going on so that he can hear our cries when we cry out to him, swoop in, fix the situation, and then be gone. I think we often have this picture of God that is like that. That is to say that we sometimes tend to have a high and, my, high and dry view of God, the one who is unmoved by anything. But I want to submit to you today, based on, the, based on the witness of Scripture, that as long as we hold on to a high and dry, kind of superhero, disconnected view of who God is, then I would submit to you that we aren't fully understanding him. Because the God who is revealed in Jesus Christ does not stand at a distance. He's not, he's not in his, his lair that we'll just call heaven, sort of listening for, with his supersonic ears, ready to swoop in and fix everything, but rather he is a God who, is, who enters in, who dares to enter in. So it's not that he's just standing at a distance and watching unmoved, but rather he enters into the sorrow, he enters into the pain, he enters into the joy, he enters into the blessing, and he identifies with you because part of your story reminds him of part of his story. 
You see, the, the beauty of the incarnation, this is a great Christmas message, by the way. The, part of the beauty, I better save it in the file, because <laughs> by December you may not remember. Uh, but but I, part of the beauty of the incarnation is not just that Jesus has gone through this so that he knows what it's like, but rather that as you are going through it, it reminds him of when he went through it, and he dares to enter into your pain and your sorrow and your blessing and your joy. That's a beautiful picture of God, is it not? I hope it is. I want you to listen to theologian N.T. Wright. He says this. He says, here is the man of sorrows acquainted with our grief and pain, sharing and bearing it to the point of tears. See, there's, there's a couple of layers in there. On, on one hand, yes, the beauty of, of, of the Word made flesh is that God is acquainted with our grief and our pain, but the beauty of, of the Word made flesh crying at the grave of his friend is that he goes further than that, and he goes to the point of sharing and bearing our pain with us. And so if we're going to have a full picture of what God is like, we must include a picture of Jesus who is in tears. I don't know if you're familiar with the Catholic theologian uh, Richard Rohr. Uh, those of us in the theological circles uh, call him Papa Rohr. He's just this big Papa Santa Claus looking guy. Like you just go up to him, uh, and he's a famous figure. I've only met him quite casually. Uh, but you want to just give him a gigantic hug, right? He just looks like this real-life teddy bear. Uh, but, but what part of what he says is a lot of our theology and a lot of our prayers begin with the phrase, Almighty God. And he goes, that is true. We have to hold on to that. God is almighty, all-powerful. He said, but we also need to hold on to the other side that so much of the story of Christ identifying with us in our pain and in our grief and in our sorrow is that God has also become vulnerable. He said, what would happen if we began to balance some of our prayers with almighty God and all vulnerable God? He submits to the church that we might have a fuller picture of who God is if we consider that. So Jesus, in this story, enters into radical solidarity with us, even to the point of tears. Tears, as I've said, are signs of solidarity. And so not only does this run sort of counter to our view of who God is or who we might even want God to be, our superhero God, but, but doesn't it also just, do you also find it difficult to grasp do you also find it just like hard to get a handle on this kind of God who would do that and share in this, to this level with all of humanity? And I, I think that maybe part of the reason that we have a hard time even believing that God cries with us is because we have a hard time showing solidarity with our own brothers and sisters, right? I said that in, in the moments where you have cried with someone, you have probably experienced the most authentic community, but, but I'd be also willing to bet that it has been very rare in your life that you have shared that, like this radical solidarity between brothers and sisters. Because here's, here's the reality, is we tend to spend our lives trying to separate ourselves from others. And of course, we would never say this. We would never call it that. What we would probably call it is we would probably call it upward mobility. 
you know, we, we, we want to be upwardly mobile. And what upward mobility really is is a, is a desperate attempt to separate ourselves because we, we need to move out of this neighborhood so we don't have to hang out with these kind of people. And so then you do, you move out of that neighborhood so that you can be separated from those kind of people and you get into a little better neighborhood, a little bigger neighborhood or, or however you want to call it. And then, and then you, you say, oh, I got to... I got to get out of here because I need a bigger yard. I need to be surrounded by more space and all of this. And if you like the country, I'm not picking on you today, right? I'm, I'm just like, some of you are like, well, I live outside the city limits. What's he saying? But, but, but hear me today. Like a lot of times we try to get out of this place and, and so that we can have a bigger thing and have fewer neighbors and separate and separate and separate. So, so much of our lives as we're trying to, maybe we would call it be successful is, is, is really we're trying to separate ourselves from people. Or at least the people who aren't like us, or the people, at least the people we don't want to be around, or at least the people that we don't want to deal with. Uh, so much is spent just trying to separate ourselves, but I think that's part of the, part of the reason that we have a hard time believing and, and really grasping a hold of a God who, who in our grief in our pain, in our sorrow, in our joy, is right there crying with us. I want to, um, again, I, I think we assume that in order for God to fix our pain, he has to be removed from it. But, but actually, I would say it's the exact opposite. That, that the hope of resurrection comes not because God is, is a superhero God who swoops in and then disappears, but, but the hope of resurrection rather comes because, because right before the resurrection, guess where Jesus is? He's on the cross. And right before Lazarus is raised from the dead, where is Jesus? He's at the grave crying with, his, with Lazarus' sisters. You see, like before the hope of resurrection, Jesus is always there embracing the pain, entering into it. I want us to, to listen again to theologian N.T. Wright, and this is actually the full quote where I had just, I had tricked you and only read part of the quote. Uh, so, so here's the full quote from N.T. Wright. Jesus doesn't sweep into the scene and declare that tears are actually beside the point because Lazarus isn't really dead. He's only asleep. No, Jesus' actions and words will shortly make clear that he has no doubt what he will do. But even in the midst of that, there is no sense of triumphalism or someone coming in smugly with a secret formula to show how clever he is. There is, however, the man of sorrows, acquainted with our grief and pain, sharing and bearing it even to the point of tears. And so God doesn't have to stay clear from the sorrow in order to heal it. But I would submit to you that God heals our sorrow and pain by entering into it, right? This is the, this is the upside down nature of, of the kingdom of God, that, that God doesn't have to be removed from our pain in order to heal it. He heals it by entering in. He does it for Mary at the grave of their friend and their brother Lazarus. And he does it for you and I on the cross. For on the cross, Jesus doesn't simply identify with our pain. Jesus isn't sitting there 
experiencing bodily pain and the pain of betrayal and all he had gone through during his passion and his life and ministry. He isn't on the cross saying, oh, this is all of my pain, but no, what he's doing is only as the Son of God can do. He is taking on all the pain of the world upon himself. He's literally entering into the pain of humanity And there he finds solidarity. And it is, and we, and all throughout history, Christians have pointed to the cross as the very place that God has healed the world. And so I don't know what your view of God is. I don't know what you picture when you picture God. But I want, us to, I want us to have just a little bit fuller picture of who God is. He is not one who stands outside of your pain. He is not one who stands outside of your sorrow. But rather he is one who fully enters into it in order to bring healing. It is by way of entering in that the healing comes. Amen? And so that is the beauty of who God is. This is... This is far more beautiful than a removed God who just sort of like swoops in with a sense of triumphalism. Look what I can do. No. God doesn't, God flexing his muscles does not look like, look what I can do. God flexing his muscles looks a lot like crying at the grave of his friend and comforting the sisters of the one who has passed. And then healing all through resurrection and new creation. This is the beauty of the gospel, friends. As I try to, to land this, I want to do my best to, to work this out for us and what it might mean for our lives. And the first thing I would say is that a God who weeps at a friend's grave requires his followers to be mystics. Uh, there, is, there is value in embracing mystery in our faith. Uh, there is value in saying, I don't have all the right answers, I don't know all the correct doctrines, but here's what I know, that in the middle of my pain, God is there with me. And I may not have the best doctrinal language to, to be able to articulate that. I may not have the, the correct theological term. I may not have anything, but maybe just this Awareness that God is present here with me. And, and so a, a God who weeps at a friend's grave requires his, friend, his followers to be mystics because this is not what gods do. Particularly in the ancient world, no God would be pictured crying at the, friend, at the grave of his friend. And yet, this is what the God who is revealed in Jesus Christ does. There is mystery, there is beauty to it. And being a mystic simply means embracing the mysterious. It doesn't have anything to do with new age or anything scary or creepy. It just simply means embracing the mysterious. In other words, there is truth in the gospel that cannot be outlined or disseminated in small group curriculum, uh, but can only be pictured in a Savior weeping Not all the truth in the world cannot be put on paper in outline form with discussion questions, right? You can get a lot of truth from that, a lot. But you can also get a lot of truth by 
a picture, a piece of art, a song. You can even get a lot of truth from a song that doesn't have any lyrics, but rather points us to the beauty of who God is. So we need to have space, we need to have room in our practices of faith to experience God outside of the outline. (laughs) That's the first thing. The, The second thing is that very practically, living into resurrection life means that at some point you're going to have to mourn a death. And then embrace the profound beauty of the gospel that God is there too, weeping with you. And of course, I, of course I might mean physical death of, of a loved one or a friend or, or something, but, but I'm also using death as a metaphor or a word picture that in order to live into resurrection life, there will be some kind of death moment in your life. Uh, where you think all hope is gone and all hope is lost and there's simply no way out of this dark hole. It's a death, but in order to live into resurrection life, you have to grieve the death and embrace the beauty that God is there with you, working it out, and in joining you in the pain is there to bring new life. Jesus' plan to heal and redeem the brokenness of the world is never intimidated or thwarted by our grief or our pain or our loss. And then the third thing I would say, just to try to work this out a little bit, is that since Jesus is the resurrection and the life, it means that wherever Jesus is present, life is present. Wherever Jesus is present, life is present. Wherever the Spirit of God is, There is life in that place. And so part of what it means to live in light of resurrection life is to embrace the ups and the downs of life and recognizing that through all the ups and the downs, through all the ebbs and all of the flow, God is there with you, present entering in. He's not waiting for you to get all your crap figured out. He's not waiting for you to just get everything just right or learn all the terms, but rather God is there with you. And so there is space for grief in the practice of faith. There is space for joy in the practice of faith. There is space for the wide array of human emotion because God is there with you. And as long as God is there with you, there is life. Amen? Because where the Spirit of God is, there is life. The Apostle Paul tells the Christians in Thessalonica, he said, don't grieve like those who are without hope. Implicit to that is there is a hopeless grief and there is a hopeful grief. And Paul says, grieve with hope. (laughs) Don't grieve without hope, but grieve with hope for God is with you. I'm reminded of this song. Uh, by a band uh, named Gunger. Many of you are fans and know. Uh, but they have a song called One Wild Life. And the song is, is essentially a declaration to embrace all the ups and downs of life, for in it, there is beauty, even in the darkest places. Even in the high moments, there's beauty. We know that, we recognize that, but even then in the darkest places, there is beauty, because there. God is present, and where God is present, there is life and there is hope. And so the lyrics of the song, the, the, uh, the repeating chorus, the anthem, you might say, of the song is this. Brave the rise and fall, 
go on and feel it all. I want to feel it all. So love the rise and fall. Go on and feel it all. I want to feel it all. If you're anything like me, you have a hard time singing that. Uh, like, I want to sing, like, brave the rise and fall. I don't really want to feel it all. <laughs> uh, I want to feel it all, but not, that, but not that much, right? Be like Gru. I like it, but not a lot. I don't like it, you know? <laughs> that was very bad, sorry. Um, but like, but this, this declaration like this says, I want to be able to feel it all, the ups and the downs. I want to be able to brave it, too. Because I want to see God in it. Let me give you, I want to tell you a story that I think illustrates this point. I'll never forget a funeral I did for an older woman. Uh, She and her husband had been married a number of years. And during all the proceedings leading up to the service and the graveside service and all of that, he was... He, the surviving husband, was, was really holding together pretty nicely. Of course, family was present, and there were events to organize, arrangements to be made, etc., etc. And in all the midst of the busyness of, of funeral planning, it, it actually can become quite easy to be fairly removed from the grief and the pain and of, of loss because there's so much going on and so many details to, to take care of, but... I'll never forget, just before they went to put her casket in the ground, completely unprompted, he got up, leaned against the casket of his dead wife, and wailed. You might say he burst into tears. This man wept. And... This went on for a few minutes. Family members were, went to comfort him as best as they could. And as a pastoral presence, I, I tried to do what I could. But, but eventually, all of us just came to the realization that we just need to let this happen. We need to let this play out. Sure, let's do what we can to try to rub his back or make sure he's well-balanced and doesn't fall, but... But this is something that we need to let him do. And as I've reflected on that moment, I I, I find myself being so impacted by this. Because I, I, I think of how healing it must have been for this man to let the full weight of grief in. To let it in. To embrace it. I mean, this is decades and decades and decades of sharing your life with a person who is now gone. And so I thought, how valuable is it for this man to let the full weight of grief in, even for just a few moments? And how necessary that is to the healing process. And I can tell you today that if I had eyes to see the spiritual realm, what I would have seen on that day is the spirit of Jesus leaning on the casket right there beside the man weeping with him. But here's the deal. 
We would have seen Jesus there weeping with him while Jesus has full knowledge and knows very good and well that at the last day, he is going to raise this woman up and give her new bodily life. Jesus knows full well that in the end, everything will be made right. But that does not prevent him for a second joining this man in tears. And so I don't know if you've had a moment like that, but I believe very strongly in my heart that if I had seen the spiritual realm, I would have seen the embodiment of the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. Amen. I want you to know today that God is right there with you. Whether you're in a season of joy and blessing and abundance, or whether you're in a season of pain and disappointment and frustration, whatever season you are in, whenever you are brought to tears, God is there crying with you. For Jesus wept.